And when I do sit down, my friends are just like, come play games with us, and it's always the same three fucking games, and I'm just like, ah. Like, when I come over, it's Mario Party every single time. That's, no, I enjoy Mario Party. You can never, yeah. you can never you can't, dis, you can't, yeah, you, you can never dis Mario Party, because it brings people together. Yeah. And it also, and takes, them apart. And also takes them apart. Yeah. Piece by piece. Yeah. Limb by limb. Bowel by bowel. Hell yeah. This is this is gonna be uh, thick as fuck because it's like a fine ground powder. Did I show you? Did I show you my uh... your grinder? No. Maybe you sent me a Snapchat of it. I'm not sure. How much of uh, Super Mario Party have you played? Oh, I think you did show me that. I'm pretty sure you did show me that. I'm 99. Last time we hung out, it's been probably like two or three months. It's been one week since you left me. It's been longer than one week. It's been one month since you talked to me. Longer since you talked to me. It's been three months since we talked to each other. There we go. That's that's more. Slap my ass and call me horny. God damn it, Granick ladies. What a great, what a great. And now they sing for children. I mean, they're still bare naked ladies though. No, they're not. That's not PC. Fun fact, did you know when the Wiggles were at the height of their popularity, they would uh, they would take two different airplanes when they were tour, just in case one airplane went down. Wow. So half the band would survive. That's some serious damage control. You know what else that is? Fucking ridiculous, because it's the Wiggles. Because it's the fucking Wiggles. Hot spaghetti, hot spaghetti. Oh, it's cold spaghetti. I messed it up already. <laughs> Cut that part out. Not cutting it. Shit. So So half... I was, potato, gonna, say, I was gonna say what that hap- what that happened to be is half a fruit salad. <laughs> is, is fruit one, salad. If one of the planes went down, yummy, yummy. If one of the planes went down, it would only be half a fruit salad left. It would just be fruit. But uh, shit, what the fuck? Cut what it real tidy like that because it's gonna be billowy. I probably won't do that much because Jesus fine. Christ, Lord knows the last time. That was- that's but you know Odd T Whispers, she's... That was interesting. Yeah, I know, I'm just saying, it's interesting. She's very, uh, she's very kind to, <clears throat> to the throat. <sighs> so it's, uh... <laughs> Holy shit, it's been it's, a while. It's been a hot fucking minute. Um, we got a lot of fun stuff coming out right now, I think, uh, just to recap on what's going on, I'm reading, um, I just finished a three-part series with Django. One of the, uh... One of liter- one of the most fucked up stories I've ever read. Uh, Bar- More fucked up than the mealworm in the penis. Yes, Baraska is probably the most fucked up story we've read on the show. Let's just say, um, <laughs> just say me cough right there. <laughs> let's just say that uh, <laughs> incest, rape, mm-hmm. trafficking of children. Oh fuck! Okay. And uh, people being skinned alive. Jesus Christ. And thrown in a grinder. Fuck. <laughs> that, that sums up the twist of Veraska in like one sentence. Um, yeah, it's a coming of age tale where you think it's all 
flowers and roses. Like it starts off like it's super eight. Dory. It starts off like super eight, dude. Just kids riding around I on bikes don't, talking don't about bring growing super up. Eight into the story. Talking about growing up like and that. what they want to do when they grow and all this shit. And then just last ten fucking pages of the story just make you want to throw up. Jesus Christ, dude. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Baraska. That's, that's a real fun. life horror. So we're also reading with Tenron Tenron Otrin. I'm reading a sort uh, a series. Uh, the left right game. We finally started that. Pro- I think I've heard of that. Probably gonna take like seven fucking episodes to tell the entire I'm pretty story. Pretty sure I've heard of it's that. It's really fucking yeah, good. That sounds really familiar. It's a uh, <clears throat> it's a caravan road trip of a ragtag group that play a supernatural game in order to attain something to prove the existence of other dimensions. I don't know quite where it's at yet because we're still reading it. We're in the middle of it right now. Um, it's pretty intense, but also very, very intriguing and psychologically, uh, just fucks with you, you know, it presents many different scenarios and I'm, I'm excited for the end. And we've also had a bunch of new people on, um, ever since a hundred, I think I've had three new people Nice, and, um, they've all brought different. <clears throat> different flavors to the field. Good old different personalities. Yeah, like uh, episode 109, we had uh, Dr. Drankenstein on the show, and he uh, he had a really good time, so I know he's going to be back soon. Um, oh no, it's Dr. Ankenstein, <clears throat> and then I call him Drankenstein. Alright, fair he, enough, fair enough. Gets super fucked up. Uh, we also, uh, we also had frowns back last episode. The special special guest appearance. (laughs) He came back. He came down from the mountains to grace us with his tits and ass and his entire presence in general. Uh, coming up shortly, uh, two episodes from now, I have a buddy called Sofa King (laughs) coming onto the show. And, um, the story we read is fucking amazing. And, uh, (laughs) gets super shit faced while we're reading it it's the first time anyone i think scutch would appreciate the shout out i think it's the the first person since scutch where he's visibly shit faced while on the show oh my god <laughs> scutch yeah, i love you the episodes that were cut that you couldn't make out oh shit we don't even like to talk about no. those um oh yeah episode 101 i also had uh <laughs> He came on as Lanky Lucifer. Uh, Lanky Lucifer. He, uh, we read Toast on his episode to introduce him to the show, and he, uh, he had a, he had a real good time. So uh, we've been having a good time since a hundred. I think the, uh, basically the quality has changed completely because we're just reading instead of like, instead of reading older stories that kind of generated creepy pasta yeah. and like you know, started the very bottom steps, the very bottom rungs of this giant ladder that, that leads from creepypasta and something awful all the way to like no sleep and all yeah. of these other like publications and shit. Like we're not doing bottom tier stuff anymore. Like left, right game came out last year and it's fucking amazing. And we're going to read Maybe it. that's why it sounds so familiar. Maybe I <laughs> it, came across it just ended in, in August of 2017, I think. So it's just like, we, I gave it a year, you know, this is like, this is what I would like to consider like season three of lots of pasta okay. and, um, or possibly season four. But, uh, I just think the quality is better. The stories are better. So we're doing more fun things. And that's when I get to you and this episode, because I've probably had these stories 
since the 70s or 80s. Since the dawn of time. Yeah, right? So we... <clears throat> I'm, I'm here. This is Lots of Pasta. I'm your host, Captain Death, and I'm here with uh, someone who hasn't been on since I think... 80 something it's been a hot minute it has been a hot minute um it's been a while you know who it is it's disco dracula i feel like i used to do something i forget what it was i do that Oh, you haven't heard the new. You haven't heard the new opening. I opened the. I opened the show a little differently now. I changed the intro song. Okay, you'll have to show me it. It's fun. Uh, we did. Uh, we did Ben drowned for episode one hundred. It was fucking awesome. Yeah, it was really great. So I had to bring in episode one hundred with a little bit more flair. Yeah, I guess I would consider that season four. Um, but you, the reason I like to have you on the on the show so much, Disco D, is not just because I reference you all the time, but also because you are probably one of the only people on the show who is as passionate as I am about the horror genre. Okay, fair I'm, enough. I'm having someone who actually res- reviews film, like in the Valley, come onto the show in December. Right, mm-hmm. right now it's like before Thanksgiving, but this is going to come out in like 2019 at some point. Um, and it's just like, I need more people that are, are just as obsessed. Um, and his thing is called, uh, how many beers? And it's the, I- the idea is how many beers do you need to get through this horror film? That's amazing. And he refused the, he reviews them all like that. He was like, hereditary, maybe one. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, and that's and then he's like, is... And then he's like, Hellfest, two fucking packs. <laughs> two packs. I want to watch Hellfest. <laughs> like Hellfest. 16 beers. Yeah, so do I. I haven't but seen it yet. It's the basic I also idea. haven't seen fucking Mandy either. And Mandy I... was, oh, I have Mandy. I have to fucking Mandy watch it. Mandy is really fucking good, I dude. really have to watch it. I saw it in theaters. I saw the Q&A. Fucking loved it. And then I've I, only I downloaded it like a week later and yeah. I watched it twice. <laughs> like, I've only heard insane things about it. Oh, man. If you had more time, I'd say we should watch that. But if only. It's so fucking good, dude. I can't, like... I can't imagine watching that movie on either acid or mushrooms because it already looks like it. Have you That's, have I've you seen, seen Beyond seen, like, the Black Rainbow? No, I this haven't. guy's first movie. I have. I have that too, and you should watch that. All right, uh, it's harder to swallow than Mandy is. Okay, yeah, I <laughs> it mean. is like two thousand one Space Odyssey hard to swallow. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! All right, very surreal. Yeah, minimal talking, like dr- very dry in a way. Yes. Yeah. Very dry, but only in the sense that there isn't so much going on as it is a feast for your eyes. Right, right, right. Um, but anyway, that dude did Mandy and it's fucking awesome. I talked about it on the show already, so I don't want to go into it. Plus, you haven't seen it, so I don't want to spoil it. But what you I have... The new, you watch the new Buffy? What I have here, it's not Buffy, it's Sabrina. Or Yeah, what the what the fuck was I talking about? Buffy because it for? has a lot of Buffy inspiration, which Sabrina. is why you said it. Yeah. Sabrina, apparently, like two or three episodes are almost like Buffy episodes in the show. Yeah. And no, I haven't watched it yet. I, I, I've right. fallen behind. Um, I expect uh, mediocre things. Do you? Um, it's American right. Horror? Lo- uh, American no, horror better, than that. better, better okay. than that. Better Then I guess I will compare it to... The ending, the last episode was eh. Stranger um, Things. The, the last episode was eh. Okay. Um, the first episode's eh. Mm-hmm. Like, two or three episodes after that, after the the premiere, 
are great. They're yeah. fucking golden. Yeah. And then it gets dumb for two episodes. Okay. There's one episode where it has a really super cool concept that I really, really fucking liked. But ultimately, it felt like the longest episode of any show I've ever watched because it just dragged. And aren't all episodes only like 42, 45 No, they're about, they're about 55 minutes. Oh, are they really? Yeah. They're, I they're guess that's longer. the cool thing about Netflix is you don't really worry about commercial time or no. breakage. And like, they, they usually... They they really differ. One episode I think was like forty two minutes, and another episode was like fifty eight. So like, did you it watch? Uh, did you watch Maniac? I haven't. Maniac was probably uh, my favorite thing that Netflix has done in a very very long time. Really, it I've was, heard mixed things. It was so fucking good. Really, I actually, I actually think it was one of my favorite things that I watched this year. I'll, I'll have to. I'll, I'll definitely have to watch it. I haven't talked about it, but I think Harold Heavyhands is the one who told me to like. I knew it came out, and I yeah. knew I was going to get to it. But, I really, but like to watch you, it. I think I've just put it off. And Harold Heavyhands actually came to me and said. No, you need to watch this like now. If you yeah. if you like these things, and then he listed things, mm-hmm. then watch it. And I like love all of those things, so I came home immediately and watched it. Um, that isn't what I wanted to talk to you about, though. We got to go back in time a little bit. Uh, you and I, uh, the la- I think the last like most important hangout we've had is um, in between your last episode and now, <clears throat> because this episode is one thirteen. Yeah. And I think your last one was 85 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did Mushrooms and watched... Oh, shit. We did Mushrooms and watched Return to Oz. Yeah. And wow. I, I lost that my fucking so mind. Lo- that was so long ago. I didn't really get to acknowledge it with anyone. I just I just kept mentioning that I lost my fucking mind. And then, uh, and then a couple weeks later, I had another kind of bad trip. Yeah. So it was just like, I... Not with me. No, no, no. That you was with that was with Spum it, and Cum, and it, it fucked me up. I even talked about it on the show for like a oh, second. Oh, did you? Yeah, it because because Tenron had asked me a question, and I was just like, "And that's what happens." <laughs> and uh, ten minutes later, that's what happens. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we let me just say this: Return to Oz is probably one of my favorite movies ever made. I think something about it just strikes me as surreal and and interesting and above all i think it has a lot of heart it has great design it has great direction um i think for me it's like my childhood's wizard of oz because i when i watched wizard of oz as a kid i thought it was lame Mm. and uh the only reason i liked it is because the great movie ride ironically uh, because now it no longer exists and yeah and it's so sad and, I love that ride. And Return to Oz is like the Tim Burton sequel in the 80s yeah. that no one deserved because it's just it it is so weird. It, it's so it, weird. It came so across dark. at such a weird time in Disney's tenure that you kind of can't help but just be confused by all of it. But if you if you stop thinking about how it existed and just sit back and enjoy it, I genuinely think it's one of the coolest like movies. It's uh, it's I'm a fan of it. It's I'm almost like anime. It. Yeah. It's like it's like you're watching 
like a Totoro. Those wheelers, you know, man. like a Hayazaki flick. Yeah, in, in yeah. Real it takes life. you on an adventure. It moves it takes in you the on same a pace. Yeah, it shows yeah. you a cool, colorful world mm-hmm. that is also, you know, has terrifying elements to yeah. it. I remember when I saw Spirited Away when I was twelve, I was relatively creeped out by some of the images. I mean, I yeah, saw. giant fucking baby. I don't fuck around with that shit. <laughs> no one fucks around with a giant. Ever baby. since uh, zombies ate my neighbors, I don't fuck around with giant ass babies. You you remember the fucking baby level? Fucking hate that level. That game's impossible. Oh, you don't know this, but on the last like 30 episodes, I've gotten really good at making baby noises and it freaks Harold and Heavy Hands the fuck out. I (laughs) noticed. It's fucked up. So we've read read a lot of funny stories about little kids. Uh... So yeah, uh, Return to Oz. Had to get that out of the way real quick because I fucking love that movie so much. Don't don't take shrooms and watch it. I had a great <laughs> you time. You had a great time. I I don't know where I went, but it wasn't fun. You went to my bathroom a few times. I went to your bathroom because I was always told that you should just shit yeah. if, if you want to get out of your trip. Uh, the truth is, the only way out of your trip is to get absolutely shit-faced, hammered, and black out. Yeah. Which is what I did when I got home that night. Did you? I think oh, you yeah. told me that. I yeah. came home, drank half a bottle of whiskey, and fell the fuck asleep. Yeah, uh, I had to do the same thing when my brothers were over. I was like, no offense, guys, but I'm going to get really fucking hot. I'm going to get really fucking drunk, and I'm going to fall asleep on the couch. And they were just like, okay. And we put on a movie, and I woke up, and they were all gone. like <laughs> <laughs> these guys. It was Kung okay. Pao. <laughs> oh, God. I fucking love that movie. Um, okay, Before next. Before we move on. After we watch Return to Oz, to, to bring your spirits up a little bit, we watched Spongebob. And, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. You uh, you saw the, the, saw future, the future episode, episode, and you were just like, I do not remember this episode. I remember I was like, this is great. parts of it, but because I was tripping my face of off, I didn't remember like any of the actual future part. And I definitely didn't remember Squidward on the ground convulsing, saying future with his limbs going in weird directions. It's, it's literally it's the, the funniest, the it's one show. of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. You were losing I, I've never mind. laughed harder because God. I've never, it, it my felt eyes, like I saw it with fresh eyes, you know? My eyes were hurting from laughing too much because they were just crying and I kept Oh yeah, them. I felt really, crazy. I felt really bad for your girlfriend and I know I apologized a bunch. I actually think that's where my bad trip goes is I feel like solely judged by everyone in the room. And but I, she was fine. And I can't get over it. But I'm just saying that's where I go when I'm tripping well, face. Yeah, okay. I got super embarrassed. Yeah. And like um, when I explained it, when you explained it to me, you know, later on and I explained it to her she was just like really like I, it looked like he was kind of uncomfortable but he didn't look you know that uncomfortable i would like to think i was controlling myself when i was you were. around you guys i, I, brought when I was around f- with my brothers <laughs> i was like you guys are gonna see the worst of this right now because I, it's I, happening they, you know what the problem was they didn't stick a fan in front of you they didn't stick a fan in front of me and when i went outside to cool off all i saw was eternal night eternal don't, blackness don't say that and I was, I was just on, like the void and i came running back down to the basement <laughs> when I, uh, on our way back from disney um we took a we took a like a very late flight i think it was like 10 o'clock or something or we got in at 10 o'clock so it was around eight o'clock but still we were up in the sky and i just looked at it and i just saw blackness and i was like 
Hello, this is this is hello, death. darkness, my old friend. I was like, this is death. This is what you see when you die. And I just looked out the window and I was like, I'm just going to go back to playing, fucking playing my DS. <laughs> I'm a child. Leave me alone. I, Don't uh, hurt me, God. Don't take like, the plane down. I feel like in that moment, you really should have just like, uh, <laughs> I feel like you should have like looked at it and just have been like, hey, man, how are you? I'll see you later. And then close the shade. <laughs> Everyone's just like, what the fuck The is only that thing I do in those situations is I put on Fleetwood Mac and I uh, I get really fucking into it. I put on Dreams. That's what you do when you I just, play Black I put Nest. Dreams on repeat and it has never ceased to calm me the fuck down. Fair enough. Because it's a, one of the best songs ever made. Yeah. Anyway, we need to continue. Yeah, because, we gotta move on. Because now it's what I'm calling the... Um, these are all things that you can watch now on Netflix, varying from okay to, like, kind of ignorable films. The uh, first one I definitely wanted to talk about, because I haven't talked about it, was um, have you had the chance to see Jeepers Creepers 3? No, and I probably will never watch that movie. It was really fucking good. Don't do this to me. Don't don't, don't say that. I'm not fucking with you. Don't say I, that. Do you like the first movie? Yeah. Do you think the second movie is okay, but just kind of stupid? Goofy and stupid. Just kind of stupid? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. It's a guilty pleasure. Third one will bring you back and complete the entire trilogy for you. It, All right, I guess I'll watch it at some point. It Add takes that to place, goddamn list. It takes place in between one and two. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And changes so much of the fucking lore, and you learn so fucking much. Okay. It's, it's so cool. It's so, the it. effects are garbage. It doesn't have the well, budget. I, yeah, it doesn't I mean, have the budget of one or two. From, yeah. But that being said, it does some great stuff. Yeah. So, and, and you're going to be rooting for one character and they're going to die in the next scene. You're going to be rooting for another one. They're going to die later. And it's just like. So it's you, the opposite of Jeepers Creepers 2 where you just wanted everyone to die. Everyone to die. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So you need to get Fuck on yeah. that because I can't talk about it. But when you watch it, I will want to talk about it. Okay. I also rewatched Ritual again recently. Fucking great. It's Go and watch fucking it. fucking great. Yeah. It still holds up. It's good. It's uh, real good. I, uh, an open house just started playing and I let oh. it, I let it happen. I heard that's a train wreck of a movie. It, it had me intrigued. Wait, is this what I'm thinking of? The kid from Don't Breathe. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Okay. This is what I'm thinking about. Uh, he gets moved into a giant mansion with his mom. Yeah. After their dad dies and they don't have money. So they, they live in a renting house. Um, and people come and go like every day. They have to get out of the house at a certain time and go do something else. Mm -hmm. And slowly this kid starts to pick up on weird intricacies about the town, his neighbors, weird things going on. And it intrigued me for a moment. And then the last half hour changes the entire fucking movie and the twist is lame and then it just murders everyone. Cool. If you're into that and you want to be surprised with that kind of ending... Um, Go for it. It's almost, eh, I feel shitty saying it, but it's Mm Lynch-esque because it does everything you don't expect and has really quirky characters. It's kind of like a shitty episode of Twin Peaks. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Um, I don't know what I give it. Maybe a 2.5 out of 5 or a 3 out of 5. That high, huh? I don't know. It's 
Maybe I've heard like zero out of five. No, it's not that. Sources. It's definitely not that bad because the main the kid from uh, and thirteen reasons. He's yeah. also the thirteen reasons yeah. uh, kid. Um, I love him. I think he's great. He's he's really good. And, I like him too. And he is just as good in this movie as he is in Thirteen Reasons. So um, next thing I watched, Murder Party. Murder Party uh, was recommended to me by someone on Reddit. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't like impressed or disappointed, but it definitely didn't do what I expected it to. Um, the basic premise is this uh, nerd who doesn't have any friends mm-hmm. finds an invitation on Halloween mm-hmm. to a party that says like, "Hey, come help us kill someone," mm-hmm. and he literally, like, thinking it's like a joke, um, like goes. Wait, what is what? What'd you say this movie was? Murder Party. Okay, never mind. Good. Uh. It has one dude I recognized from uh, the Blue Ruin, the, the, that director kill list. Yeah. Um, the one actor I recognized from his movies, but uh, n- nothing really else. Uh, he he goes to this party, and naturally they tie him up and they talk about trying to kill him. And it's a very fun, quirky kind of uh, British humor-esque mm-hmm. cast um, it's American. It's completely American, but uh, it has a charm, and the the gruesome stuff is definitely gruesome. They don't. They are not shy about um, sure. v- violence. Uh, the the ending is a one room. Uh, a, a guy with a chainsaw enters a, a, a tiny tiny room of fourteen people, and you mm. see what and you see what happens there. <laughs> um, he's trying to get to one person who's on the other side of the room. Yeah. So imagine what he does. I can to get there. I got it. It's fun. Um, there was a chainsaw on the ground, so he's pushing people out of the way. Fun. Yeah. Excuse me, he sir. says, "Excuse me to everyone." Excuse me, and, he, and, he, and he turns the chainsaw off, and he walks slowly sorry, through sir. the audience. That's okay, sir. Um, this is this is an oldie but a goodie, and this is like pre lots of pasta that I just wanted to bring up. Uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Oh. I great just, movie. I just think it's good. I just it's think it's movie. fun. A lot of people think it's good. It's a good movie. Alan Tudyk is one of my favorite supporting actors in like anything. I'm I'm talking voice acting. Uh, Wreck It Ralph. Like King Candy is just such a funny, and the twist with Turbo is just great. Like I just think Alan Tudyk brings so much fun to like all of his roles, even the fucking small ones. Like I watched uh, mm-hmm. Premature on Netflix. Probably one of the funniest things I've ever watched. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays like a college, uh, recruiter for like a a Ivy league school. And, uh, he's just so goddamn likable and he's only in like 10 minutes of the movie. He's washed from Firefly. You know, he, he's just great. He's just fucking great. Tucker and Dale versus evil. Really fun. And then the last one, which you made me want to talk about. I didn't initially want to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it now. Um, the Terrifier. Yeah, I fucking love the Terrifier. I know you do. You don't like it. It's really not great. It's not a good movie. It's really not. It's not a good movie. I will go in and say that it's not a good movie. The special <laughs> effects are great. You just like the fucking mime. I do like the mime. I like that you called him a mime, not a fucking clown, because he's not a clown. He's, he's not a, a clown. Mime. He's a mime. But he's everyone's a, just like, oh, look at this evil clown. This evil fun, clown is so scary. Fun facts, you uncultured swine. Black and white doesn't talk. Makeup. Yeah. You got a fucking mime. You got a fucking mime. Absolutely. Mimes are allowed to have props. Whoever said that mimes aren't allowed to have props? You can use props. It's fine. 
I don't give a fuck. Is there is there a rule? They hold, some, don't they there, hold up signs all the is time? Is there a guideline somewhere that says like I'm, mimes are only allowed to have small shoes? I'm I'm sure there's a guidebook to mimes. Shit, out there. you're probably right. I'm not actually all that educated in this argument. I just think that is that is how I want to re- refer to the terrifier as a as a mime. I I watched the terrifier. I just and... wished the entire movie was about the pizza shop guys. No, I don't give a fuck about them. Are you serious? You fucking kidding me? <laughs> kind of, because I didn't care about any of the women. Oh, no, I didn't. Neither did I. Okay. I just cared about the mime. That's all I fucking cared about. He has about. a lot of fun little moments, though, doesn't he? The tricycle and everything. And the like, tricycle's just, fun. The tricycle. That's what my picture was trying, was going to try to be, but I couldn't find a you good couldn't image find of a good it. Image of as tricycle. soon as he came out on that tricycle, I fucking lost it. Yeah, I could imagine that. Yeah. I could just see you laughing like a jackass. I was. It. it was amazing. Him and and hawing like a fucking donkey. Um, I laughed at certain parts. Mm-hmm. I questioned a lot of it. Um, I mean, the uh, the dissection, the body cross dissection. That scene is relatively well made. But it's not enough to hold the movie. I I just, I fucking love that movie. It's, I think, in my opinion. That's so fucking weird. It's one of the better, newer horror films because, (laughs) you gotta think about it. You gotta think about it. Look at the way it's made. It is a throwback to 80s '80s movies. 80s horror movies. The entire thing is shot like that. The music but is it's all filmed set. like the a seventies grindhouse. The music is all like synth and stuff like that. Like the soundtrack is amazing. For that type of horror movie, the soundtrack's amazing. They used little to no CGI. I think the only CGI they really used was the dude's head, like with the candles and stuff like that, like yeah. burning the pizza head, the pizza head, pizza shop guy's head. Yeah. That was like the only CG they used. Okay, it was. It was an impressive film for what they were trying to accomplish. And that's also, fun fact, not the first appearance of the Terrifier, of the mime. Oh, what's that? It was just a short fucking film. Oh, that was okay. That was made by the same people. So but I think it was like a 20-minute so like short a, or something. It was like a test short for what would eventually be a full be, concept. Be the Terrifier, yeah. Feature presentation. One more thing. Really, really quick. We don't yeah. have to talk that much about it. No, if you have any Netflix um, or, or The Haunting of Hill House. Have not watched it. You haven't watched it yet. All right. No, I... We, it, we, I've heard it's good. We marathoned it in a day. Oh, okay. Was it that good? It's very addicting. Ha. Huh. They do cliffhangers well. Um, it's very addicting. Yeah. Um, I'm the type of person who got through 13 Reasons Why in a day. You know, yeah. like, they just end the episodes in a way where I'm like, yeah, this is a story. I'm reading a book right now. Let's keep it going. Yeah, it's like, all right, just, yeah. I'll, I'll just keep it on. Yeah, I gotta watch Sabrina and I gotta watch Haunted Hill House. Um, there is a very good story for the haunting of Hill House. Um, the characters are very well done. The acting was really impressive, and I didn't know anyone in the fucking show. Um, but I'd be surprised if I did. It it was it was just it was a good story. I like that it kept, it it goes back and forth between like them as adults and them as kids. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. So like because they're them as adults are talking about what happened at Hill House. So like they're explaining things and then it'll flash back to them as kids when it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And there's so many little like nods and hints and it's a fun movie especially cuz I like or not movie, it's a fun show especially because I think you enjoy doing this as well as I do. 
you look for things in the background and like there's literally the creators of the show there's said there's like 13 hidden ghosts per episode that's fun so like and they're not doing anything they're just there they're like brush like they're just under something or they're looking at something or they're behind something but you can see there's there's little things in the show that like I would rewind and be like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Like, I wasn't just making it up in my head. Like, like a statue's facing a different way in, like, the next scene or something like that. I am definitely going to enjoy that. Yeah. I think that that's actually one of my favorite... Um, it's so much fun. Horror. That's one of my favorite horror yes. shows. It's the thing in the background. That's not I doing think, anything. Um, it's just there. I think uh, one of the biggest reasons why Slenderman failed is because it, it wasn't that kind of movie. Because and they also made it like twenty years too late, not twenty years, but you know. What I, mean. I know what you mean. They uh, made it. They made it. Ten Ron and I, I made a deal with him uh, because I'm making him do the giant series of left right game. Mm-hmm. Even though he enjoys the material, I'm making him record like a seven part series with me. Um, we're gonna do a commentary track of Slenderman. He and I. Oh God. Uh, we're gonna tell. We're gonna do the riff tracks thing. We're gonna tell people to like. Start the recording yeah. now, and then if we're watching the movie at the same time, yeah. and uh, it's going to be a fucking shit show, because that movie's a fucking shit show. Oh, I, I mean, I'm done with my reviews. Is there any other, like, Netflix shit you want to reference? Any other, like, free, I won't say free Netflix, media? But there is one movie that I uh, would say skip 100%. Okay. But I've heard people enjoyed it, so maybe you'll enjoy it. Okay. Uh, the second Strangers, Strangers Pray at Night. Oh, I did see that. Did you? Yeah. What? You don't, we don't have to go really into it, but no. like, what do you think? Like it, hate it? I liked it more than the first one. Really? Yeah. We even rewatched the first one like a week prior, and then came back and the watched first the one. Second one. The, I will say the first one definitely hasn't aged extremely well it's a very 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 slow moving movie which works for because it's you know it's just a home invasion i i categorize Um, it as the these are probably my most used adjectives while watching the first strangers movie relentless paradoxical and unforgiving yeah okay fair enough when I watched the second one, I said... I just... I hated all the characters in the second one. I didn't sure. care. They oh, were... no. See, I liked the kid. I oh, li- I didn't I like liked the kid. The boy. I didn't fucking care. I liked the boy. I thought his... um, I thought his bulls... You know, he had bulls. The pool scene is really fucking great. It's really fucking great. I will say that. I will say that I actually that think movie. that... Uh, that that and the ending pretty you much... You like the ending. I love the ending. I thought this guy just wouldn't fucking die. You thought he was going to be like a Jason type character. No, not at all. Oh, I just okay. thought that mo- movies, horror movies, don't play out like the completely human... Yeah. Like, but driven by murderous hatred yeah. very well. I don't think that that comes... O- that, that doesn't come across well in film, mm-hmm. and somehow I found it enjoyable in while watching it. That being said, it's still like a 5 out of 10 movie. Yeah, it's know? not good. It's still... Yeah, it's still like, like people a say The Strangers is one of like the greatest horror movies ever made. It's just like... Mm. I think it's good. It's and good for here's, what it Here's is. what I'm saying. I like Strangers... I enjoy Strangers 2 more than the first one, but the first one is a much more well-crafted film and okay. definitely yeah. more definitely more horrifying i would say the second one's a lot more fun the second one is a lot more fun and that's it yeah and that that's whole what, scene that i pool think scene if you were to tell me if you were to tell me right now next halloween i have to pick to watch the first one or the second one i will tell you right now i'd watch the second one yeah 
I can see that. I can I can understand that. I I might that I cool might scene. I'm also gonna say this. I might never watch the first Strangers movie ever again because I watched. I pull it out every now, like every like ten. I years. watched it, got nothing new out of it, and completely like. Did not give a shit. Not, by like, the end not of it. like House of Wax. I was like, and then this is what's gonna happen, and then this is what happens next. It's the kind of movie you see once, and you like never need to see it again because That's true. It, it yeah. never does anything different. Yeah. It, you never notice something that you didn't notice last time. It's not one of those because they movies. point it out. Like it's not like yeah, they literally like something it's happens, once and done. Like, these oh. these three fuckheads in the, in the middle of nowhere just get murdered. Yep. There's there's no payoff. There's no nothing. They make a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> Tactical fucking errors. Yeah. And and like I didn't find myself saying that as much in the second one, but at the same time I'm like Christina Hendricks, grab the top of the fucking toilet and smack their fucking hand, break their fucking hand when they come in and try to undo the lock in the bathroom. Yeah. Don't get stabbed. Literally arm yourself. You could have picked up the mirror and like broken it with your elbow and grabbed a fucking shard. I with, think like, a we piece were actually shirt. saying the same like, thing. Like, what the fuck? What that's the, that's what, what we the were fuck? Doing. We were Why are they party. sitting there dying? Why yeah. are they accepting death? That's that's exactly what we were. Doing the kid the gets gutted time. in the back and somehow survives. Like like you know that shows me. That's why I like him. Because, like, he fucking fought to survive, and even then you're like, this fucker's gonna die. He might still die. Like, the point... Like, the movie ends on, like, a... Yeah, your brother's, like, fucked up. He's and paralyzed, then, and then it ends. Like, <laughs> it fucks you up. It's yeah. not great. But I but I think, overall, the movie is a lot more enjoyable than the first one. Fair enough. We that need to get suit. into these fucking stories. Yeah, the, the main reason we're doing both of them is because one of them is relevant, and then the other one is something I've talked about for and wanted to do for a very long time. So let's hop into the first one real quick, because it's shorter, and I think it's going to be uh, fun to do. because. Oh, okay, we're this, starting off with this. Got yeah, it. this is kind of like... Thank uh, Christ, man. Here we go. This is kind of starting like... Starting it. We got until 39, and as soon as it hits 39, we're going to start it. I'm just. I just wanted to say that uh, you just came back from Disney. Um, Fucking love Disney. Man. Even Sir Booberry just got back from Disney, and he was telling me all about it. Oh yeah, um, that's right. We like. I I love Disney. We do. Uh, was it uh, abandoned by Disney? Yeah. No. Yeah. Is it? I think so. Is that what it's called? I'm pretty sure it's something like that. Abandoned by God. That's all I remember. Um, that's like one of your first, it's, it's in there in your yeah, episodes. It's it like is. the third or fourth episode. Well, yeah, cause we I think that's when I came back from Disney the last time. And then the other one is called like the room zero or whatever. I yeah. So they go uh, out of the basement. Every time you've there. been to Disney, we read Disney stuff. It's fun. I think, uh, right, I 39. think, ah, the magical world of Disney. <laughs> Disney, on. Disney isn't made horrifying enough. The company owns seventy five percent of the media in the world. Yeah, there are there what a are, monopoly there that are is. many many hidden facets and factors of their facilities. Um, there are just so many fucking good points you could bring up about the the inconsistencies and kind of terrifyingness of Disney as a company. But at the same time, I drank the Kool Aid, or in this case, Flavor Aid, because it's historically accurate. This story is from Reddit No Sleep. It's called Working at Disney. Do it. Ah, the magical world of Disney. So much goes on offstage and behind the scenes to ensure that the guests have the most magical times of their lives once they arrive on the property. 
Ever seen a wet paint sign while walking through the parks? How about a maintenance cast member with a bag of tools? Anyone with a construction hard hat? Of course you haven't. That's actually a lie. I have seen wet paint signs. They just I've also seen construction yeah. happening. Yeah. Of course you haven't. That would ruin the experience that Walt Disney World is perfection. It's because that 99.99% of all the work goes on after the show is over. All the little mice that keep the place running like clockwork don't even start working until the announcement is made over the radios we carry that the park is now clear. Then the crews get to work. Maintenance starts buzzing around on their golf carts. The custodial cast members bring out the large hoses to wash down every inch of the streets we all walk on. And the construction crews are allowed to pass the security perimeter gates to come in and do whatever needs to be done. That's where my story begins. I've worked construction most of my life. When work dried up north, I moved to Florida where some of my family had moved over 10 years ago. Naturally, I needed to find a job. I wound up applying for and getting hired by a construction company that shall remain nameless that literally did almost all the construction needs for the, co- for the corporate mouse. I spent five or six overnights a week at various locations at the Walt Disney World with co-workers. We weren't employed by Disney, hence we were not cast members, doing whatever our foreman told us what needed to be done. Sweet gig, actually, even though it was very hard work at times. Just think, how many people can truly say to... How many people can truly say they get to ride around Magic Kingdom, Animal Kingdom, etc. in the dead of night in trucks, golf carts, what have you, while the park is just about empty except for a skeleton crew? For about the first six months, I kind of kept to myself except for talking with the crew of the company that I worked for. Then, I began to notice how chummy many of the Disney overnight crew was with our staff. Custodians, when working in the same areas as us, would come and talk to the boys as well as the overnight security cast members. I began to slowly get to know many of these folks as well. They, for the most part, were really nice. I got to meet many of the night security staff, by face at least, at all four parks as well as the resorts. If you didn't know, Disney World opened in 1971. It was actually not too uncommon to come across someone who had been a lifer with Disney or knew someone who was. 40 plus years working for the mouse, God bless him. (laughs) Even my foreman, who although did not work directly for Disney World, was one of these. Boy, did they have some stories to tell to pass the time. As I adjusted more to the job, I began to get more comfortable with the surroundings. The cast members grew more social towards me, and I was able to make my way through the parks without getting lost, too. Let me tell you, that is not an easy feat when you first start out working there, especially at night. Although it's not pitch black, there is very minimal lighting, except where we put our floodlights up to do work. Securities only using flashlights or a headlight of the carts to light their way and store lights are only on if someone was working in them. Quite eerie and yet cool at the same time. It's like a totally different place than during operating hours. As a matter of fact, one time, when I decided to visit the park as a guest, I couldn't find a ride that I wanted to go on because it looked so different during the day with all the colors, people, sounds, and music. One year of working at the place- It was the carousel. I didn't know what the carousel was. I couldn't find the carousel. Where's the carousel? Is there a carousel? Is it this way? Is it this way? Does it move? Does it move? There are animals. I know there are. But do they move? Do the animals move? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> One year of working at the place for Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Where, where is it? <laughs> the ride was awesome. One year of working at the place full time, and I had to... Where's 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Where's 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Yeah. Now it's just fucking Nebo. Nebo subfish. No, it's Little Mermaid. I thought Little Mermaid was where Nemo was. 
I thought for some reason 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea was in Magic oh, Kingdom. No, 10,000 Leagues never actually made it over to Florida. Oh, shit. It, it was only ever made in Disneyland and still exists over there, but functions as a completely different ride. Interesting. All right, back to the story. No. One year of working at that place full time, and I had to swallow my stupid pride and go get a map. Ha ha. Pathetic. Anyway, as I started conversing more and more with the cast members, some of the security staff and I found out that we had a mutual interest in the paranormal. Of course, that would come up in conversation eventually when working graveyard shifts. Graveyard shifts. Ooh, ha! Your ghost host. I would. <laughs> I would get to hear stories from them all the time. The famous ghost in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Dead man tell no tale. The murder suicide note in one of the rooms of a certain resort. The jumping off of terraces at another. See you later. <laughs> Ghosts of cast members who passed on that come back and say hi. I can believe that. Spooky occurrences at rides when some unfortunate guest was killed. The stories went on and on. Although fun to hear, I won't lie, it did give me, it did give the whole property an ominous feel at times that a guest will never get to experience. Even co-workers of mine had stories to tell. Attractions turning on even though the lockout tagout tag out system is in place to ensure that they don't. Following someone to a break room and walking in to find no one in there. Of course, the noises and voices when they were working alone. Ghost Hunters! Jackpot! <laughs> so several months ago, when arriving at work, the foreman called our team over for a meeting. He announced we would be starting a new assignment in the Magic Kingdom shortly. We would be working on the Seven Doors Mine Train ride. This attraction would be opening later in the year. How exciting. Up until now, my crew, since I had started with them, have been doing mundane yet necessary assignments. That was another thing I felt like I should mention, but didn't remember until now. This story is relatively new, whereas Abandoned by Disney probably existed for like 10 years. Yeah. This one, like, you could tell it dates itself. Uh, yeah, Seven Dwarfs Mine, Mine Train really mm -hmm. only got built and put into the Magic Kingdom in like 2015, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. We had the pleasure of pouring concrete, digging ditches, fixing bathrooms, good stuff. Now we are actually going to get to work on an attraction. Imagine me getting to tell my future wife and children that I helped make this as we were riding it. They would be in awe and so proud this guy's not making it alive. <laughs> the building was already up for the most part, and we were going to be working on making it show ready. You know, making a building look like a mine inside and out, fabricating rocks, fixating jewels, the works. When the time came to start this, we had he had us meet in one of the cast member break rooms inside the attraction. For those that don't know, most of not all attractions have break rooms inside them that the public can't see. A cast member working the ride literally doesn't have to leave if he or she doesn't want to, even for a lunch break. He explained the job, who would be doing what each week, and all the normal details. Then he proceeded to tell us that as per Disney management, we were to all to take our break lunch breaks at 3 a.m. And, and to only take it in this particular break room we were in. I thought that was kind of weird. Since my employment with them began, we were never told when and where to take lunch. We used to always stagger our breaks as well, so that most of the crew was always working. Whatever, I guess. The mouse paid our bills, and who the hell was I to question it? I was still the rookie, but I will say this. I saw what I was thinking in the eyes of my coworkers as well. We were only a group of 10 guys on this assignment and we were broken up into groups of 5. One group would work on the outside and one group on the inside of the attraction. I was in the inside group. It was a pain to work in that thing. Due to the size of the spaces where we had to work, maybe one or two floodlights would fit in an area where we were working. It gave an effect of staring into a fire in the woods. While working on a wall, it was bright as hell. When you came out of that space, you were as blind as a bat. 
first few days, it became a running joke contest of who tripped on something and broke their ass the most each week had to pay for the drinks when we were to, went out together. I paid up twice the first month of Disney. Oh my god. I paid up twice the first month. Thanks, Disney. I guess you'd call me a paranoid, but I would never leave my lunch bag in the fridge in the break room. I'm an absolute angry asshole if I get hungry and, have, and after having it stolen once while at Animal Kingdom. I was not going to have it happen again. So I just carried it with my other gear from then on. We were working on the opposite side of the attraction from the break room and it was just about lunchtime. We cleaned up all the possible trip, trip hazards and went on break. When we got into the break room, I realized I had left my bag where we were working. Damn it! There was no way I was spending $8 on a Coke and a stupid bear claw from one of Disney's rip-off vending machines. I told the guys I was going to run, and, run back and get my bag, so off I went. I was hurrying along, because we only get a half hour for lunch, and if we take even a minute longer to get back to our work location, there is hell to pay. And you all know how fast a half hour flies by unless you're working. Trying to make good time, I must have made a wrong turn in all that blackness. My stupid flashlight was in my tool bag, of course. I was attempting to feel my way around the track when I saw some light coming up ahead of me. They looked like they could be a set of emergency lights, but they were quite dim and flickering. Who cares? Any port in the storm, right? I slowly my made my way towards them and began to hear voices, but I couldn't make out any words. I hope, I hope. <laughs> it's like Walt, Walt's head on like a little spider bot, and he's like whipping these little midgets Jesus, to go and do Jesus work. Christ. There was no one. Back to work. There was no one in the attraction other than us, or so we were told. Oh my god. After all the stories I was told, was I finally going to have one of my own? As much as I felt the hairs on my neck stand up, I was excited as well. Even though I really like hearing about ghosts, I can't say that I'm really, truly afraid of them. I just don't want them in my home. Other than that, I find the idea of them fascinating. I slowly peeked my head around the next corner. I wish to god it was a ghost I saw. It was a large, at least compared to where we were working, open space, and there was a fabricated stone slab made to look like a natural rock formation in the center. Six figures in suits were around it in a circle. Five were holding candles, while one was reading off what looked like an old piece of parchment. What, was he, what he was saying was beyond my knowledge, not English from what I could hear. Every time the main suit would finish a sentence or two, the others would repeat the last word. As I crouched there amazed, I saw what looked like a flash of yellow and blue staring from on top of the altar. There was someone on it. A woman. She stirred again, and I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. It looked like one of those college program kids that get to be friends with the characters. Completely dressed as Snow White. She was gagged and bound. What the hell was I seeing? Her eyes were huge and filled with fright. Tears were streaming down her face, making her overly done makeup run. As much as she struggled, she could barely move. The man with the parchment stopped reading. The others all produced some crudely made daggers and made their way to her. Two of them went to each of her arms, two to her legs, and one stood at the top of her head. The leader, for the lack of a better word, made a gesture with his hands and said one more uncomprehendable. That's a hard word to say. It's because it's not real. Alright. Uncomprehendable word, and the others moved in. The two by her arms sliced her arms from mid-bicep down to her wrists. Jeez. Two others did the same from mid-thigh to the tops of her feet. Oh, God. Did they make a puppet out of her? The fifth one actually carved what looked like a half moon into her forehead. I stifled, no, I stifled a scream. It's not a puppet. 
It's not a puppet. <laughs> a scream and closed my eyes. Tie I, little strings to her and like hang her from the ceiling. Do, 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 do. Oh my god. That's the crossover no one asked for. But I am dead. <laughs> I could hear muffled screams and smell copper in my nostrils and taste it in the back of my throat. Ugh. I opened my eyes briefly. Well, you don't like the taste of copper? I'd rather drink my bong. I opened my eyes briefly to see the leader produce a knife, walk over to the altar, and lift poor Snow White's chin up toward him. That's when I turned and ran. I got back to the break room, sprinting through the door. I must have looked half crazy because one of my buddies said, What the hell happened to you? Where's your lunch bag? I didn't even answer him. I just stood there. He looked me over one more time and decided to call the foreman over the radio to come talk to me. The foreman came in, took one look at me, and asked if I was feeling okay. I shook my head. He told me to go home for the remainder of my shift. Fuck yeah, got out of work. <laughs> I called out of sick the next three days. In the comfort of my home, I attempted to rationalize what had happened. It had to be a gag, right? Was it my boys with an elaborate welcome to the crew trick? I mean, God, Disney World is crammed full of college program kids. Late teens and early 20-year-olds and away from home and college, getting paid crap just so they can put Disney on their resumes, just fornicating and causing havoc every chance they get, playing tricks so they can put it on their blogs and Twitter or whatever else stupid things they use to get attention, had to be. <laughs> had to be! <laughs> on my first night back to work, I literally had to force myself not to turn my car around at the security gate when the guard opened it for me to enter. When I got to the break room, one of their lifers I worked with was sitting there seemingly waiting for me. He told me to clock in, leave my stuff with him, and go meet the foreman over by the main entrance. I looked at him, I looked at him quizzically. What the fuck kind of Quizzically. That's a word. I hate that word. I like it. Good. Since it was pretty far from where the mine was, and it was heavily frowned upon for us non-cast members to be found wandering far from where we were assigned. I stated as such, and he just said, Go. You'll be with your boss. So it would be his ass, and not yours, if someone says something. I made my way over to the main entrance and found him under the train station, sitting on one of the benches. He told me to sit. We sat there for about five minutes without speaking. He lit up a cigarette, and I did it as well. During night shift, you could get away with this if you were careful careful about it. There are designated smoking areas there is. at some points of the park. Yep. He asked me what happened to me the other night. I just shrugged, looked at the newly, newly hosed down ground, and exhaled. You know why? Because Walt smoked. Yeah, it's true. Also, tobacco's a company. Can't piss off everyone. Nope. Especially when you want to own the world, Disney. Fuck yeah. He put his hand on my shoulder and said that I was a great co-worker. The other guys all liked me a lot. He didn't want me to lose. He want. He didn't want to lose me, and that he was surprised I came back after the way I had looked. I told him that I wasn't far from the truth. I. He asked me if I was just sick or if something had happened. He also asked me if maybe a cast member manager had given me a hard time, and if so, he'd handle it. I shook my head and said that he wouldn't believe me and would probably fire me for being a nut if I told him. He then said something that made me feel it was okay to tell my story. He said, I've worked here since it was just flat lands and dirt roads. Nothing you can say can shock me. I looked at him, dead in the eyes. When I saw that he was telling the truth, I began to explain everything, every, every frame. Every frame. Every frame from I the beginning. Asian. Yeah. Just for a second, though. I ended the story when the other guy told me to come see him. The foreman sat there, flicked a cigarette butt, and ground it onto the floor. A huge Disney no-no. 
He gets out there nodding through the entire story, not interrupting once. Never once a smirk, a smile, a look of disbelief. A custodial truck happened to drive by, and when the headlights flashed on us, I had seen that all the blood had seemed to drain from my foreman's face. He breathed in and exhaled once from the mouth. He had the beginnings of tears in his eyes. He finally spoke. What I'm about to tell you, kiddo, not many here have been here long enough to know, and those who do know almost never speak about. It's sort of a taboo subject, and the few that do talk about it are too old to care, have had one too many scotches. He smiled half-heartedly at this, and thought maybe he's, and I thought maybe he might stop, but he continued. I've lived in this area for almost 80 years. I have barely been out of this state. Less time than I can count on one hand, Orlando has only looked this way for a short time. If you could have seen this land in the time I grew up here, you would be amazed. Marshland and orange groves, nothing else. Until Uncle Walt decided this was the next spot for his incredible theme park, and there was practically nothing. Humans have been inhabiting this land for a very long time. The AIS, the A's, I guess that's the mm-hmm. The AIDS, virus, Florida, they're all gay. The Appalachie, the Calusa, the Timucua, the Tocobago, all native Indians that lived in or around the land you are sitting on right now. The Paleo-Indians were here before them, ancient lands. Well, I'm no historian, but I guess them Indians at some point figured out this land was a little spoiled. Spoiled as in not just bad, but spoiled as in how a little child throws a tantrum if it doesn't get its way. At some point, when these cultures were not having good weather or crops, what have you, they figured out that a blood sacrifice could do the trick. Every time they built a large structure in this area, they drew blood. But for whatever reason, the sacrifice had to do with the structure being built. For example, if the Indians were building a religious structure, a shaman had to be sacrificed. If a settler was building a barn or an orange grove, a farmhand had to be the one. You get me? And it had to be done by the elders of the town couldn't be done by just anyone, but the elders, most influential ones in the area. You ever seen that movie Pet Cemetery by Stephen King? Like that. But the important people involved. Do you know the story about Disney buying this land? He bought it not under the Disney brand, but hundreds of pseudo-companies. He didn't want anyone to know he was going to build a theme park here, because the locals may not have sold as cheaply as they did. So he did what he did, I wonder if, through all of this, truth bargaining, if him or his round table of executives ever wondered why so many were willing to sell at that price. Were they done having to do the despicable to make a profit here? Did many of them want out? They can really make you wonder. 
And how come supposedly no one dies at Disney? How come all the people are proclaimed dead off the property? And why do we hire so many college kids that are supposedly running rampant here? Think about it. I just gotta tell you because I think you may deserve it after you've seen what you claim to. The powers that be here are powerful. More powerful than just being Disney executives. They pretty much rule everything. You think Club 33 is exclusive? He laughed, but with no humor. The club you stumbled upon rules more than just a theme park. If you talk about what you've seen, your life may be in danger. I just sat there, trying to soak in what I had just heard. This was insane. And then my foreman said one more thing before the last sentence I ever said to that nice man. If you think that was bad, just imagine what I heard as we were building its small world. I swear, I still hear those screams of those kids once I close my eyes at night. Forty years after. My reply? I quit. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I ain't dying at Disney. I see ya. Peace, peace, motherfucker. Ah. <laughs> uh. The magical world <laughs> of Disney. I still get the shakes when I think about it. I hate every fucking Disney commercial that comes on TV. And they come on a lot. I get goosebumps every time. I see that Universal is hiring. I need work. Should I apply? Fucking hang out with Dabbing Squidward. <laughs> I was gonna say Volcano Bay. It's just like they're actually throwing people into the, the volcano. volcano. It's like Universal isn't smart enough at hiding the sacrifice ritual. Well, no, just, no, well it's a volcano. You could sw- you could swim in the lava. <laughs> it's called Volcano Bay. Volcano Bay. Okay, so f- first off, I did not expect a twist like that. To say the the first thing, I didn't either. Um, you don't really expect that in these Disney <laughs> stories. I also don't believe it at all. <laughs> I mean, no, absolutely it's tough. Not. It's tough because, like, I liked it. I think it had a lot of charm, and I think it kind of follows. Like, I don't believe Abandoned by Disney either. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I th- the first one is better than the second one we did. Mm. Like, uh, part one is better than part two, by all means, but, like, there there comes a point where you're just like, haha, like, <laughs> this is this is parody, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. There there were good aspects, there were bad aspects, but ultimately, I think it all, it all depends on what type of uh, Disney fan you are. Yeah. I suppose people who don't like Disney as much probably find that funny. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Um, I wouldn't say... I'm in love with the Disney brand as much as I'm in love with the theme parks, but at a point, I kind of just gave up and stopped caring, because I love everything Pixar does. Uh, I I love most Marvel things, most. I can't... I gotta say, the streaming service stuff is starting to scare me, like uh, all the announcements for all the Star Wars and Marvel. I just... I fear oversaturation now. Oh, yeah. I really do. And um, they own so much media. You know, yeah. it's like... I don't know. You know, I'm going to stick with everything just to kind of have a finger on the pulse. But 
it doesn't make me want to come back all the time. I'll say that much. Um, looking at you, Iron Fist. Looking Cancel. at looking at you, Inhumans. <laughs> um. So anyway, yeah, I, I liked the story. I didn't think it was quite abandoned by Disney caliber. I don't either. I agree with that. But, it was good. It was but okay. It was still cool. Like it fits the same vein. Yeah. I also found it ironic that they referenced Stephen King because. I've been holding on to two Stephen King short stories, one of which we're going to read next. Um, I've heard about this one for a long time. Um, I know loosely this inspired a certain piece of uh, science fiction, Um, but I I still think it's fun. Um, You know, you could see the implications. This was written a long time ago, so we'll talk about it at the end, but it's Stephen King's... The Jaunt. The Jaunt. And uh, this is uh, apparently sci-fi horror. And, you know, we we don't read King very often. I, I think the only thing we talked about once was the It script, but that doesn't even really involve him as much as it just yeah. involves his subject matter. Um, his storytelling, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I'm expecting some Event Horizon level shit. That would be nuts. That would be cool. That'd be okay, okay. Chapter one. <laughs> this is the last call for Jaunt 701. The pleasant female voice echoed through the blue concourse of New York's Port Authority Terminal. The PAT had not changed much in the last 300 years or so. It was still gungy and a little frightening. The automated female voice was probably the most pleasant thing about it. This is jaunt service to Whitehead City, Mars. The voice continued. All ticketed passengers should now be in the Blue Concourse Sleep Lounge. Make sure your validation papers are in order. Thank you. The upstairs lounge was not at all grungy. Or grungy. The upstairs lounge was not at all grungy. It was wall-to-wall carpeted in oyster gray. The walls were an eggshell white and hung with pleasant, non-representational prints. A steady, soothing progression of colors met and swirled on the ceiling. There were 100 couches in the large room, neatly spaced in rows of 10. Five John attendants circulate, speakingly low, cherry voices and offering glasses of milk. Okay. Milk? Milk? Want some milk? Fuck yeah. Want some milk? You want fresh milk? Fresh milk over here. We got fresh milk. Got your cereal? We got fresh milk. You can put it on your cereal. You can mix it up with some chocolate, make some chocolate milk, and fresh milk. Fuck yeah. Fresh milk. At one side of the room was the entranceway, flanked by armed guards and another John attendant who was checking the validation papers of a latecomer. A harried-looking... Harried? Harried? Yeah, harried. Harried. A harried-looking businessman with the New York World Times folded under one arm. Directly opposite, the floor dropped away in a trough about five feet wide and perhaps ten feet long. Passed through a doorless opening and looked like and looked a bit like a child's slide. The Oates family lay side by side on four John couches near the far end of the other room. Mark Oates and his wife Merrillis Merrillis flanked the two children. Daddy, will you tell me about the jaunt now? Ricky asked. You promised. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I fucking hate yeah, you. Yeah, Dad, you promised. Thank you too, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Patricia added and giggled. 
Patricia added and with giggled a crisp chilly for no good reason. <laughs> a businessman with a bill like a bull glanced over at them and went back to the fodder of papers he was examining as he lay on his back. His spit shine shoes neatly together. Spit shine, you said. Spit shine. Spit shine. Shine. Spit shine. <laughs> spit shine. Yeah. <laughs> From everywhere came the low murmur of conversation and the rustle of passengers settling down on the John couches. Mark glanced over at Marilis, Oates, and winked. She winked back, but was almost as nervous as Patty sounded. Why not, Mark thought. First John, for all three of them. He and Marilis had discussed the advantages and drawbacks of moving the whole family for the last six months. Since he'd got a notification from Texaco Water that he was being transferred to Whitehead City. Finally, they had decided that all of them would go for two years. Two years, Mark would be stationed on Mars. He he wondered now, looking at Marilis' pale face, if she was regretting the decision. He glanced at his watch and saw it was almost half an hour to John time. There was enough time to tell his story, and he supposed it would take the kid's mind off their nervousness. Who knew? Maybe it would even cool Marilis out a little bit. All right, he said. Ricky and Pat were watching him seriously. His son, 12, his daughter, 9. Oops, played that wrong. He told he told himself again that Ricky would be deep in the swamp of puberty, and his daughter would likely be developing breasts by the time they got back to Earth, and again, found it difficult to believe. The kids would be going to the tiny Whitehead combined school with the hundred-odd engineer and oil company brats that were there. His son might as well be going on a geology field trip to the to Phobos. 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 To Phobos, not so many months distant. It was difficult to believe, but true. Who knows, he thought wirely. Maybe I'll do something about my jaunt jumps, too. So far as we know, he began, the jaunt was invented about 320 years ago, around the year 1987, by a fellow named Victor Caroon. He did it as part of a private research project that was funded by some government money, and eventually the government took it over, of course. In the end, it came down to either the government or the oil companies. The reason we don't know the exact date is because Karun was something of an eccentric. You mean he was crazy, Dad? Ricky asked. Eccentric means a little bit crazy, dear. Marilis said and smiled across the children at Mark. She looked a little less nervous now, he thought. Oh, anyway... He had been experimenting with the process for quite some time before he informed the government of what he had. Mark went on. And he only told them because he was running out of money and they weren't going to refund him. Your money cheerfully refunded. Oh shit, no laughing. Pat said and giggled shrilly again. (laughs) That's right, honey. Mark said and ruffled her hair gently. At the far end of the room, he saw a door slide noiselessly open and two more attendants came out dressed in the bright red jumpers of the John service, pushing a rolling table. Anything from the trolley, dear? We'll take the whole lot. <laughs> Fuck you. On it, <laughs> on it was a stainless steel was nozzle. Ron's next line was, Fuck yeah. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> Fuck story yeah. There was his mom's sandwiches or whatever he had on the ground. <laughs> Fuck you, mom. Fuck you, king. What's wrong with these fucking sandwiches? Why did he feel ashamed about this? I don't know. On it was a stainless steel nozzle. I was looking to see where I was at. On it was was a stainless steel nozzle attached to a rubber hose. Beneath the table skirts, tastefully hidden, Mark knew there were two bottles of gas. In the net bag hooked to the side were 100 disposable masks. Mark went on talking, not wanting his people to see the representative... 
oh my god representative yeah representative yeah i was thinking too literally about it represent oh my god i did it again representative <laughs> representative of leith. leith of leith until they had to and if he was given enough time to tell the whole story that would welcome the gas passers with open arms considering the alternative of course you know that the jaunt is teleportation no more or less he Somet- said <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes in college chemistry and physics, they call it the Karun process, but it's really teleportation. And it was Karun himself, if you can believe the stories, who named it the jaunt. He was a science fiction reader. And, and there's a story by a man named Alfred Bester. The star's my destination, it's called. And this fellow Bester made up the word jaunt for teleportation in it, except in his book you could jaunt just by thinking about it and we can't really do that. The attendants were fixing a mask to the steel nozzle and hanging it to an elderly woman at the far end of the room. She took it, inhaled once, and fell quiet and limp on her couch. Her shirt had pulled up a little, revealing one slack thigh a road mapped with varicose veins. (laughs) An attendant considerably readjusted for her while the other pulled off the mask and affixed a fresh one. It was a process that made Mark think of the plastic gases in motel rooms. He wished to God that Patty would cool out a little bit. He had seen children who had to be held down and sometimes they screamed as the rubber mask covered their faces. It was not an abnormal reaction in a child, he supposed, but it was nasty to watch and he didn't want to see it happen to Patty. About Rick, he felt more confident. I guess you can say that the jaunt came along at the last possible moment. He resumed. He spoke toward Ricky, but reached across and took his daughter's hand. Her palm was cool and sweating lightly. The world was running out of oil, and most of what was left belonged to the Middle Eastern desert people, who were committing to using it as a political weapon. They had formed an oil cartel they called... O-P-E-C. What's a cartel, Daddy? Patty asked. Well, a, a monopoly, Mark said. Like a club, honey, Marilis said. And you could only be in that club if you had lots of oil. Oh. I don't have time to sketch the whole mess in for you, Mark said. You'll study some of it in school, but it was a mess. Let's... Let it go at that. If you owned a car, you could only drive it two days a week, and gasoline cost 15 old bucks a gallon. Gosh, Ricky said. It only costs four cents or so a gallon now, doesn't it, Dad? That's a big fucking... That's a big... That's a big difference. Mark smiled. That's why we're going where we're going, Rick. There's enough oil on Mars to last almost 8,000 years, and enough on Venus to last... a another 20,000. But oil isn't even important anymore. Now what we need most of all is... Water! Patty cried, and the businessman looked off from his papers and smiled at her for a moment. <laughs> Little bitch. <laughs> What's well, in a sense? I'll take that away. <laughs> That's right. Mark said, Because in the years between 1960 and 2030, we poisoned most of ours. The first water lift from the Martian ice caps was called Operation Straw. That was Ricky. Yes, 2045 or thereabout. But long before that, the jaunt was being used to find sources of clean water here on Earth. And now water is our major Martian export. 
the oil strictly a sideline, but it was important then. The kids nodded. Exponentially. I nodded vigorously. The point is, you little, listen, you little piece of shit. Those things were always there, but we were only able to get it because of the jaunt. When Kroon invented his process, the world was slipping into the Dark Ages. The winter before, over 10,000 people had frozen to death in the United States alone because there wasn't enough energy to heat them. Oh, yuck. Patty said, matter-of-factly. Oh, yuck. Mark glanced at his right and saw the attendants talking to a timid-looking man, persuading him. At last, he took the mask, seemed to fall dead on his couch, seconds later. First-timer, Mark thought, you can always tell. For Karoon, it started with a pencil, some keys, a wristwatch, then some mice. The mice showed him that there was a problem. Victor Karoon came back to his laboratory in a stumbling fever of excitement. He thought he knew how Morse had felt, and Alexander Graham Bell, and Edison, but this was bigger than all of them. And twice, he had almost wrecked the truck on the way back from the pet shop in New Paltz where he had spent his last $20 on nine white mice. What he had left in the world was 93 cents in the right front pocket and $18 in his savings account, but this did not occur to him. And if it had, it certainly would not have bothered him. The lab was in a renovated barn at the end of a mile-long dirt road off of Route 26. It was making the turn onto this road, where he had just missed cracking up his Brad pickup truck for the second time. The gas tank was almost empty, and there would be no more for 10 days to two weeks, but this did not concern him either. His mind was in a delirious whirl. What had happened was not totally unexpected, no. One of the reasons the government had funded him, even to the paltry tune of 20000 a year, was because the unrealized possibility had always been there in the field of particle transmission. But to have it happen like this, suddenly, with no warning, and powered by less electricity than was needed to run a color TV, God! Christ! He brought the brat to a screech halt in the dirt of the dooryard, grabbed the box on the dirty seat beside him by its grab handles on the box with dogs and cats and hamsters and goldfish and the legend, I came from Stackpole's House of Pets, and ran from the big old double doors. From inside the box came the scurry of whisk of his test subjects. He tried to push one of the big doors open along its track, and when it wouldn't budge, he remembered that he had locked it. Kroon uttered a loud, SHIT, and fumbled for the keys. The government commanded that the labs would be locked at all times. It was one of the strings they put in the money. But Karun kept forgetting. He brought his keys out and for a moment simply stared at them, mesmerized, running the ball of his thumb over the notches in the brat's ignition key. He thought again, God, Christ! Then he had scrabbled through the keys on the ring for the yellow key that unlocked the barn door. As the first telephone had been used in inadvertently, Bell crying into it, Watson, come here! That was supposed to be you. No, that's good. <laughs> when he spilled some acid... Hey, get over. Watson, come here. When he spilled some acid on his papers and himself... And himself, yeah. When he spilled some acid on his papers and himself. So the first act of teleportation had occurred by accident. Victor Karun had teleported the first two fingers of his left hand across the 50-yard <laughs> width of the barn. <laughs> ah, fuck. <laughs> some bitch. <laughs> Motherfucker. Shut <laughs> Shit! God Christ! <laughs> I like this guy. Karun had set up two portals at opposite sides of the barn. On his end was a simple iron gun. Iron. Oh my god. Ion gun. Fucking Christ. On his end was a simple ion gun. 
available from any electronic supply warehouse for under $500. On the other end, standing just beyond the far portal, both of them rectangular and the size of a paperback book, was a cloud chamber. Between them was what appeared to be an opaque shower curtain, except that shower curtains were, are not made of lead. The idea was to shoot the ions through portal, portal 1 and then walk around and watch them streaming across the cloud chamber standing just beyond portal 2, with the lead shield between to prove that they were really being transmitted. Except that, for the last two years, the process had only worked twice, and Karun didn't have the slightest <laughs> idea why. As he was setting the ion gun in place, his fingers had slipped through the portal, ordinarily no problem, but this morning, his hip had also brushed the toggle switch on the control panel at the left of the portal. He was not aware of what had happened. The machinery gave only the lowest audible hum until he had felt a tingling sensation in his fingers. Chapter 2 It was not like an electric shock. Karun wrote in his one and only article on the subject before the government shut him up. The article was published of all places in Popular Mechanics. He had sold them for $750 in a last-ditch effort to keep the jaunt a matter of private enterprise. There was none of that unpleasant tingle that one gets if one grasps a frayed lamp cord, for instance. It was more like the sensation one gets if one puts one's hand on the casing of some small machine that is working very hard. The vibration is so fast and light that it is literally a tingling sensation. Then I looked down at the portal and saw that my index finger was gone on a diagonal slant through the middle knuckle, and my second finger was gone slightly above that. In addition, the nail portion of my third finger had disappeared. Karun had jerked his hand back, instinctively crying out. He so much expected to see blood, he wrote later, that he actually hallucinated blood for a moment or two. His elbow struck the ion gun and knocked it off the table. He stood there with his fingers in his mouth, verifying that they were still there and whole. The thought that he had been working too hard crossed his mind, and then the other thought crossed his mind, the thought that the last set of modifications might have, might have done something. He did not push his fingers back in, in fact, Karun only jaunted once more in his entire life. At first, he did nothing. He took a long, aimless walk around the barn, running his hands through his hair, wondering if he could call Carson in New Jersey, or perhaps Buffington in Charlotte. Carson wouldn't accept a collect phone call, the cheap-ass kissing bastard, but Buffington probably would. Then an idea struck, and he ran across the portal, too, thinking that if his fingers had actually crossed the barn, there might be some sign of it. There was not of course. Portal 2 stood atop three stacked Pomona orange crates, looking like nothing so much as one of those toy guillotines missing the blade. On one side of its stainless steel frame was a plug-in jack from which a cord ran back to transmission terminal, which was little more than a particle transformer hooked into a computer feed line, which reminded him. Karun glanced at his watch and saw it was quarter past eleven. His deal with the government consisted of short money plus computer time, which was infinitely valuable. His computer tie-in lasted until 3 o'clock this afternoon, and then it was goodbye until Monday. He had to get moving, had to do something. I glanced at the pile of crates again, Karun writes in his Popular Mechanics article, and then I looked at the pads of my fingers, and sure enough, the proof was there. If it would not, I thought, then convince anyone but myself, but in the beginning, of course, it was only oneself that one had to convince. What was it, Dad? Ricky asked. Yeah, 
Patty asked. What? Mark grinned a little. They were all hooked now, even Marilis. They had nearly forgotten where they were. From the corner of his eye, he could see the John attendants whisper wheeling their cart slowly across the jaunters, putting them to sleep. It was never as rapid a process in the civilian sector as it was in the military, he had discovered. Civilians got nervous and wanted to talk it over. The nozzle and the rubber mask were too reminiscent of hospital operating rooms, where the surgeons with the knives lurked somewhere behind the anesthetist with her selection of gases and stainless steel canisters. Sometimes there was panic, hysteria, and always there were a few who simply lost their nerve. Mark had observed two of these as he spoke to the children, two men who had simply arisen from their couches, walked across the entryway with no fanfare at all, unpinned the validation papers that had been affixed to their bills, turned them in, and exited without looking back. Jaunt attendants were under strict instructions not to argue with those who left, there were always standbys, sometimes as many as 40 or 50 of them, hoping against hope as those who simply couldn't take it left, standbys, were let in with their own validations pinned to their shirts. Karun found two splinters in his index finger, he told the children. He took them out and put them aside. One was lost, but you can see the other one in the Smithsonian Annex in Washington. It's in a hermetically sealed glass case near the moon rocks the first space travelers brought back from the moon. Our moon, Dad, or one of Mars's? Ricky asked. Ours, Mark said, smiling a little. Only one manned rocket flight has ever landed on Mars, Ricky, and that was a French expedition somewhere about 2030. Anyway, that's why there happens to be a plain old splinter from the orange crate in the Smithsonian Institution, because it's the first object that we have that actually teleported, jaunted across space. What happened then? Patty asked. Well, according to the story, Karun ran back to the Portal 1 and stood there for a moment, heart thudding out of breath. Got to calm down, he told himself. Got to think about this. You can't maximize your time if you go off half-cocked. Deliberately disregarding the forefront of your mind, which was screaming at him to hurry up and do something. He dug his nail clippers out of his pocket and used to point of the file to the dig the splinters out of his index finger. He dropped them onto the white inner sleeve of the Hershey bar he had eaten while tinkering with the Transformer and trying to widen its afferent capability. He had apparently succeeded in that beyond his wildest dreams. One rolled off the wrapper and was lost. The other ended up in the Smithsonian Institution, locked in a glass case that was corroded or cordoned off with thick velvet ropes and watched vigilantly and eternally by a computer-monitored closed-circuit TV camera. The splinter extraction finished, Karun felt a little calmer. A pencil. That was as good as anything. He took one from beside the clipboard on the shelf above him and ran it gently into Portal 1. It disappeared smoothly, inch by inch, like something in an optical illusion or in a very good magician's trick. The pencil had said Eberhard Faber number two on one of its sides, black letters stamped on yellow painted wood, when he had pushed the pencil in until all but Eberhard had disappeared. Karun walked around to the other side of Portal 1. He looked in. He saw the pencil in cut-off view, as if a knife had chopped smoothly through it. Karun felt with his fingers where the rest of the pencil should have been, and of course there was nothing. He ran across the bar to Portal 2, and there was the missing part of the pencil lying on top of the crate. Heart thumping so hard that it seemed to shake his entire chest, Karun grasped the sharpened point of the pencil and pulled it the rest of the way through. He held it up. He looked at it. Suddenly, he took it 
and wrote, It Works, on a piece of barn board. He wrote it so hard that the lead snapped on the last letter. Karun began to laugh shrilly in the empty barn, to laugh so hard that he startled the sleeping swallows into flight among the high rafters. Works! He shouted and ran back to Portal 1. He was waving his arms, the broken pencil knotted up in one fist. Works! Works! Do you hear me, Carson, you prick? It works and I did it! Mark, watch what you say to the children. Marilis reproached him. Mark shrugged. It's what he's supposed to have said. Well, you can't do a little selective editing. Dad, Patty asked, is that pencil in the museum too? Does a bear shit in the woods? <laughs> Mark said, and then clapped one hand over his mouth. Classic response. Both children giggled wildly, but that shrill note was gone from Patty's voice Mark was glad to hear, and after a moment of trying to look serious, Marilis began to giggle too. The keys went through next, Karun simply tossed them through the portal. He was beginning to think on track again now, and it seemed to him that the first thing that needed finding out was if the process produced things on the other side, exactly as they'd been, or if there was any changes by the trip. He saw the keys go through and disappeared exactly the same moment he had heard them jingle on the crate across the barn. He ran across, really only trotting now, and on the other way, he paused to shove the lead shower curtain back on its track. He didn't need either it or the ion gun now, just as well since the ion gun was smashed beyond repair. He grabbed the keys, went to the lock the government had forced him to put on the door, and tried the Yale key. It worked perfectly. He tried the house key, it also worked. So did the keys which opened his file cabinets, and the one which started the Brad pickup. Chapter 3. Curran pocketed the keys and took off his watch. It was a Psycho Quartz LC with a built-in calculator below the digital face 24 tiny buttons that would allow him to do everything from addition to subtraction to square roots. A delicate piece of machinery, and just as important, a, chroma- a chronometer. Karun put it down in front of the Portal 1 and pushed it through with a pencil. He ran across and grabbed it up. When he put it through, the watch had said 11.31.07. It now said 11.31.49. Very good. Right on the money, only he should have had an assistant over there to peg the fact that there had been no time gain once and forever. Well, no matter. Soon enough the government would have him waiting in it hip deep in assistance. He tried the calculator. 2 and 2 still made 4. 8 divided by 4 was still 2. Square root of 11 was still 3.3166247. And so on. That was when he decided it was mouse time. What happened with the mice, Dad? Ricky asked. Mark hesitated briefly. There would have to be some caution here, if he didn't want to scare his children, not to mention his wife, into hysteria minutes away from their first jaunt. The major thing was to leave them with the knowledge that everything was alright now, that the problem had been licked. As I said, there was a slight problem. Yes, horror, lunacy, and death. How's that for a slight problem, kids? Corinne set the box which read, I came from Stackpole's House of Pets, down on the shelf and glanced at his watch. Damned if he hadn't put the thing on upside down. (laughs) He turned it around and saw that it had been a quarter of two. He had only an hour and a quarter of computer time left. How the time flies when you're having fun, he thought, and giggled widely. He opened the box and reached in, and pulled out a squeaking white mouse by the tail. He put it down in front of the portal one and said, Go on, mouse. The mouse promptly ran down the side of the orange crate on which the portal stood and scattered across the floor. Cursing, Karun chased it and managed to actually get one hand on it before it squirmed through a crack between two, two boards and gone. And was gone. <laughs> Shit! Karun screamed and ran back to the box of mites. 
He was just in time to knock two potential escapees back into the box. He got a second mouse holding this one around the body. He was, by trade, a physicist, and the ways of white mice were foreign to him, and slammed the lid back down. This one, he gave the old heave-ho. <laughs> it clutched at Karun's palm, but to no avail. It went head over ratty little paws through Portal 1. Karun heard it imme immediately land on the crates across the barn. This time he sprinted, remembering how easily the first mouse had eluded him. He need not have worried. The white mouse merely crouched on the crate, its eyes dull, its sides aspirating, aspirating weakly. Karun slowed down and approached it carefully. He was not a man used to fooling with mice. But you didn't have to be a 40-year-old veteran to see something was terribly wrong here. The mouse didn't feel so good after it went through. Mark Oates told his children with a wide smile that was only noticeable false to his wife. Karun touched the mouse. It was like touching something inert. Pack straw and sawdust, perhaps. Except for the aspirating sides. The mouse did not look around at Karun. It stared straight ahead. He had thrown in a squirming, very friskly and alive little animal. Here was something that seemed to be a living waxwork likeness of the mouse. Then, Karun snapped his fingers in front of the mouse's small pink eyes. It blinked and fell dead on its side. So Karun decided to try another mouse. Mark said. What happened to the first mouse? Ricky asked. Mark produced that wide smile again. It was retired with full honors. He said. Karun found a paper bag and put the mouse in it. He would take it to Mascani, the vet, that evening. Mascani could dissect it and tell him if its inner works had been rearranged. The government would disapprove his bringing a private citizen into a project, which would be classified triple top secret as soon as they knew about it. Tough titty, as the kitty. <laughs> it's Stephen King. You know. Tough titty, as the kitty. You know how he does things. Yeah, it does have his charm. Was reputed to have said to the babes who complained about the warmth of their milk. Karun was determined that the great white father in Washington would know about this as late a game in the as late in the game as possible. For all the scan help the great white father had given him, he could wait. Tough titty. Then he remembered that Moscone lived way the hell gone on the other side of New Paltz, and that there wasn't enough gas in the brat to get even halfway across town, let alone back. But it was 2.03, he had less than an hour of computer time left. He wouldn't worry about the goddamn dissection later. Karun constructed a makeshift chute leading to the entrance of Portal 1, really the first John Slide, Mark told the children, and Patty found the idea of a John Slide for mice deliciously funny, and dropped a fresh white mouse into it. He blocked the end with a large book, and after a few moments of aimless pattering and sniffling, the mouse went through the portal and it disappeared. Karun ran back to the barn. The mouse was dead on arrival. There was no blood, no bodily swelling. Oh my God! No bodily swellings to indicate that a radical change in pressure had ruptured something inside. Karun supposed that oxygen, oxygen starvation might. He shook his head impatiently. It took the white mouse only nanoseconds to go through. His own watch had confirmed that the time remained a constant in the process, or damn close to it. Second white white mouse joined the first in the paper sack. Karun got a third out, a fourth if you count out the fortunate mouse that had escaped through the crack. Wondering for the first time which would end first, his computer time or his supply of mice. He held this one firmly around the body and forced its haunches through the portal. Across the room, he saw the haunches reappear. Just the haunches. 
The disembodied little feet were digging frantically at the rough wood of the crate. Karun pulled the mouse back. No catatonia here. It bit the webbing between his thumb and forefinger hard enough to bring blood. Karun dropped the mouse hurriedly back into the I came from stall of stump. Oh my god. I came from stack poles house of pets box and used the small bottle of hydrogen peroxide in his lab first and his lab first aid kit to disinfect the pipe. Put a band-aid over it and rummaged around until he found a pair of heavy work gloves. He could feel the time running out, running out, running out. It was 2.11 now. He put another mouse out and pushed it through the backward, all the way. He heard it across the portal, too. The mouse lived for almost two minutes. It even walked a little after a fashion. It staggered across the Perone, per, oh my god, Pomona, orange crate, fell on its slide, struggled weakly to its feet, and then only squatted there. Corinne snapped his fingers near its head, and it lurched perhaps four steps further between falling on its side again. The aspiration of its sides slowed, slowed, stopped. It was dead. Karun felt the chill. He went back, got another mouse, and pushed it halfway through, head first. He saw it reappear at the other end, just the head, then the neck, and chest. Cautiously, Karun relaxed his grip on the mouse's body, ready to grab it if it got frisky. It didn't. Mouse only stood there, half of it on one side of the barn, half on the other. Karun jogged back to Portal 2. The mouse was alive, but its pink eyes were glazed and dull. Its whiskers didn't move. Going around to the back of the portal, Karun saw an amazing sight, as he had seen in the pencil cutaway, so now he saw in the mouse. He saw the vertebrae of its tiny spine ending abruptly in round white circles. He saw its blood moving through the vessels. Cool. He saw the tissue moving gently with the tide of life around its minuscule gullet. If nothing else, he thought, and wrote later in the Popular Mechanics article, it would make a wonderful diagnostic tool. Then he noticed that the tidal movement of the tissues had ceased. <laughs> the mouse had died. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Croon pulled the mouse... Oh, this is chapter four. Chapter four. Croon pulled the mouse out by the snout, not liking the feeling of it and dropping it on the paper sack with his companions enough with the white mice, he decided. The mice die. They die if you put them through all the way. And they die if you put them through halfway, head first. Put them through halfway, but first they stay frisky. What the hell is in there? Sensory input, he thought almost randomly. When they go through, they see something, hear something, touch something, God, maybe even smell something. That literally kills them. What? He has no idea. But he meant to find out. Karun still had almost 40 minutes before Comlink pulled the data base out from under him. He unscrewed the thermometer from the wall beside the kitchen door, trotted back to the barn with it, and put through the portals. The thermometer went in an 83 degrees Fahrenheit. It came out 83 degrees Fahrenheit. He rummaged through the spare room where he kept a few toys to amuse his grandchildren with. Among them, he found a packet of balloons. He blew one of them up tied it off and batted it through the portal. It came out intact and unharmed. A start down the road toward answering his question about a sudden change in pressure somehow caused by what he was already thinking of as the jaunting process. With five minutes to go before the witching hour, he ran into his house, snatched up his goldfish bowl inside Percy and Patrick, switched their tails and darted about in agitation, and ran back with it. He shoved the goldfish bowl through portal one. He hurried across to Portal 2, where his goldfish bowl sat on the crate. Patrick was floating belly up. Percy swam slowly around near the bottom of the bowl, as if dazed. A moment later, he also floated belly up. Karun was reaching for the goldfish bowl when Percy gave a weak flick of his tail and resumed his lackadaisical swimming. 
Slowly, he seemed to throw off whatever the effect had been, and by the time Karun got back to Muscani's veterinary, veterinary clinic that night at 9 o'clock, Percy seemed to be as perky as ever. Patrick was dead. Karun fed Percy a double ration of food and gave Patrick a hero's burial in the garden. After the computer had cut out for the day, Karun decided to hitch a ride over to Muscani's. Accordingly, he was standing on the shoulder of Route 26 at the quarter of four that afternoon, dressed in jeans and a loud plaid sport coat, his thumb out, a paper bag on his other hand. Finally, a kid driving a Chevette, not much bigger than a sardine can, pulled over and Karun got in. What you got in the bag, my man? Bunch of dead mice, Karun said. Eventually, another car stopped. When the farmer behind the wheel asked about the bag, Karun told him it was a couple sandwiches. Muscani dissected one of the mice on the spot and agreed to dissect the others later and call Karun on the telephone with the results. The initial result was not very encouraging. So far as Muscani could tell, the mouse had opened up was perfectly healthy except for the fact that it was dead. Depressing. Victor Karun was eccentric, but he was no fool, Mark said. The John attendants were getting close now and he supposed he would have to hurry up or he would be finishing this in the wake-up room in Whitehead City. Hitching a ride back home that night, and he had to walk most of the way, so the story goes, he realized that he had solved maybe a third of the energy crisis at one single stroke. All the goods that had to go by train and truck and boat and plane before that day could be jaunted. You could write a letter to your friend in London or Rome on Senegal, and he could have it the very next day. Without an ounce of oil needing to be burned, we take it for granted, but it was a big thing to Karun, believe me, and to everyone else as well. But what happened to the mice, Dad? Daddy. Rick asked. Don't say daddy like that. Daddy. <laughs> daddy. That's what Karun kept asking himself, Mark said, because he also realized that if people could use the jaunt, that would solve almost all of the energy crisis, and that we might be able to conquer space. In his popular mechanics article, he said that even the stars could finally be ours, and the metaphor he used was crossing a shallow stream without getting your shoes wet. You'd just get a big rock and throw it into the stream, then another rock, stand on the first rock, and throw that into the stream. Go back and get a third rock, go back to the second rock, throw the third rock into the stream, and keep up like that until you made a path of stepping stones all the way across the stream. Or in this case, the solar system, or maybe even the galaxy. I don't get that at all, Patty said. That's because you got turkey turds for brains, Ricky said smugly. I do not, Daddy, Ricky said children. Don't, Marilis said gently. Karun pretty much foresaw what has happened, Mark said. Drone rocket ships reprogrammed to land, first on the moon, then on Mars, then on Venus, and the outer moons of Jupiter. Drones really only programmed to do one thing after they landed. Set up a jaunt station for astronauts, Ricky said. Mark nodded. And now there are scientific outposts all over the solar system, and maybe someday, long after we're gone, there will even be another planet for us. There are even jaunt ships on their way to four different star systems with solar systems of their own, but it'll be a long, long time before they get there. I want to know what happened to the mice, Patty said impatiently. Well, eventually the government got into it, Mark said. Karun kept them out as long as he could, but finally they got the wind of it and landed on, back, on him with both feet. Karun was nominal head of the jaunt project until he died ten years later, but he was never really in charge of it again. Jeez, the poor guy, Rick said. But he got to be a hero, Patricia said. He's in all the history books. 
Looks like President Lincoln and President Hart. I'm sure that's a great comfort to him wherever he is, Mark thought, and then went on, carefully glossing over the rough parts. The government, which had been pushed to the wall by the escalating energy crisis, did indeed come in with both feet. They wanted the John on the paying basis as soon as possible, like yesterday. Faced with economic chaos, an increasingly probable picture of anarchy and mass starvation in the 1990s, only last-ditch pleading made them put off announcement of the John before an exhaustive spectrographic analysis of jaunted articles could be completed. When the analysis was complete and showed no changes of makeup of John and artifacts, the existence of the John was announced with the international hoopla. Showing intelligence for once, necessity is, after all, the mother of invention. The U.S. government put Young and Rubicam in charge of the PR. That was where the myth-making about Victor Caroon, an elderly, rather peculiar man who showered perhaps twice a week and changed his clothes only when he thought of it, began. Young and Rubicam and the agencies which followed them turned Caroon into a combination of Thomas Edison, Eli Whitney, Pecos Bill, and Flash Gordon. The blackly funny part of all of this, and Mark Oates did not pass this on to his family, was that Victor Caroon might then have been dead or insane. Art imitates life, they say, and Caroon would have been familiar with the Robert Heinlein novel about the doubles who stand in for figures in the public eye. Victor Caroon was a problem, a nagging problem that wouldn't go away. He was a loud-mouthed foot-dragger, a holdover from the ecological 60s, a time when there was still enough energy floating around to allow foot-dragging as a luxury. These, on the other hand, were the nasty 80s, with coal clouds befouling the sky and a long section of California coastline expected to be uninhabitable for perhaps 60 years due to nuclear excursion. Victor Caroon remained a problem until about 1991, and then he became a rubber stamp, smiling, quiet, grandfatherly, a figure seen waving from podiums in news films. In 1993, three years before he officially died, he rode in the pace car at the Tournament of Roses Parade. Puzzling. And a little ominous. The results of the announcement of the jaunt of working teleportation on October 19, 1988 was a hammerstroke of worldwide excitement and economic upheaval. On the world money markets, the battered old American dollar suddenly skyrocketed through the roof. People had bought gold at $806 an ounce suddenly found that a pound of gold would bring something less than $1,200. In a year between the announcement of the jaunt and the first working jaunt stations in New York and L.A., the stock market climbed a little over a thousand points. The price of oil dropped only 70 cents a barrel, but by 1994, with jaunt stations crisscrossing the U.S. at the pressure points of 70 major cities, OPEC had ceased to exist, and the price of oil began to tumble. By 1998, with stations in most free world cities and goods routinely jaunted between Tokyo and Paris, Paris and London, London and New York, New York and Berlin, oil had dropped to $14 a barrel. By 2006, when people at last began to use the jaunt on a regular basis, the stock market had leveled off 5,000 points above its 1987 levels. Oil was selling for $6 a barrel, and the oil companies had begun to change their names. Texaco became Texaco Oil and Water, and Mobile had become Mobile Hydro 2 Ox. By 2045, water prospecting became the big game, and oil had become what it had in the 1906, a toy. Chapter 5. What about the mice, Daddy? Patty asked occasionally. What about the mice? What happened to the fucking mice? Tell me! Put the mice, okay? Give me the mice! Are they alright? 
Mark decided it might be okay now, and he drew the attention of his children to the jawed attendants, who were passing gas out only three aisles from them. Rick only nodded, but Patty looked troubled as a lady with a fashionably, fashionably shaved and painted head took a whiff from the rubber mask and fell conscious. Can't jaunt when you're awake, can you, Dad? Ricky asked. Mark nodded and smiled reassuringly at Patri- Patricia. Karoon understood even before the government got into it. How did the government get into it, Mark? Marilis asked. Computer time. <laughs> Shit, I missed that. Computer time. <laughs> Computer time, he said. The database. That was the only thing Karun couldn't beg, borrow, or steal. The computer handled the actual particulate transmission, billions of pieces of information. It's still the computer, you know, that makes sure you don't come through with your head somewhere in the middle of your stomach. Marilis shuddered. Don't be frightened, he said. There's never been a screw-up like that, Mare, never. There's always a first time, she muttered. Mark looked at Ricky. How did he know? He asked his son. How did Karun know you had to be asleep, Rick? When he put the mice in backwards? Rick said slowly. They were all right, at least as long as he didn't put them all in. They were only, well, messed up when he put them in head first, right? Right. Mark said. The John attendants were moving in now, wheeling their silent car to oblivion. He wasn't going to have time to finish after all. Perhaps it was just as well. It didn't take many experiments to clarify what was going on, of course. The jaunt killed the entire trucking business, kids, but at least it took the pressure off experimenters. Yes, foot dragging had become a luxury again, and the tests had gone on for far better than 20 years. Although Karun's first test with drugged mice had convinced him that unconscious animals were not subject to what was known forever after as the organic effect, or more simply, the jaunt effect. He and Mascani had drugged several mice, put them through Portal 1, retrieved them at the other side, and had waited anxiously for their test subjects to reawaken, or to die. They had reawakened, and after a brief recovery period, they had taken up their mouse lives, eating, fucking, playing, and shitting, with no ill effects whatsoever. Shitted and farted. (laughs) I sharted. Those mice became the first of several generations which were studied with great interest. They showed no long term ill effects. They did not die sooner. Their pups were not born with two heads or green fur, or neither neither did these pups show any other long-term effects. When did they start with people, Dad? Rick asked, although he had certainly read this in school. Tell that part. I want to know what happened to the mice! Patty said again. Although the John attendants had now reached the end of their aisle, they themselves were near the foot, Mark Oates paused a moment to reflect. His daughter, who knew less had nevertheless listened to her heart and asked the right question. Therefore, it was his son's question he chose to answer. I'm going to ignore you. The first human jaunters had not been astronauts or test pilots. They were convict volunteers who had not even been screened with any particular interest in their psychological stability. In fact, it was the view of the scientists now in charge. Kermit was not one of them. He had become what is commonly called a tattoo. Titular. Tattoo. Titular? Titular. Titular? Mm-hmm. Titular head. That the freakier they were, the better. <laughs> if a mental spaz could go through and come out all right, or at least no worse than he or she had gone in, the pro- then that the she pro- had gone, then she had been going in, the process was probably safe for the executives, politicians, and fashion models of the world. Half of a dozen of these volunteers were brought to Providence, Vermont, a site which had become every bit as famous as Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, had once been. 
gassed and fed through portals exactly two hand miles apart, one by one. Mark told his children this because, of course, all six of the volunteers come back just fine and feeling perky, thank you. He did not tell them about the purported seventh volunteer. This figure, who might have been real or myth, or most probably a combination of the two, even had a name, Rudy Foggia. Foggia was supposed to have been a convicted murderer sentenced to death in the state of Florida for the murders of four old people at a Sarasota bridge party. According to the, I'm not going to be able to say that word, apocrypha, apocrypha, the combined forces of the Central Intelligence Agency and the EF, FBI. FBI. Yeah, thank you. I was I see what he did there. FBI. FBI had come to Foggia with a unique one-time take it or leave it, absolutely not to be repeated offer. Take the jaunt wide awake, come through okay, and we put your pardon signed by Governor Thurgood in your hand. Out you walk, free to follow the one shoe cross, or to off a few more old folks playing bridge in their yellow pants and white shoes. Come through dead or insane? Tough titty. As the kitty was purported to have said, what do you say? Foggia, who understand that Florida was one state that really meant business about the death penalty, and whose lawyer had told him he was all in probability the next to ride old Sparky, said okay. Enough scientists to fill a jury box with four or five left over as alternatives were present on the great day in the summer of 2007. But if the Foggia story was true and Mark believed it probably was, he doubted if he had been any of the scientists who talked. More likely, it had been one of the guards who had flown with Foggia from Railford to Montpelier and then escorted him from Montpelier to Province in an armored truck. If I come through this alive... Foggia is reported to have said, I want a chicken dinner before I blow this joint. He then stepped through the Portal 1 and reappeared at Portal 2 immediately. Came through alive, but Rudy Foggia was in no condition to eat his chicken dinner. In the space it took John to cross two miles, pegged at 0.000000067 of a second by computer, Foggia's hair had turned snow white. His face had not changed in any physical way. It was not lined or jowly or wasted, but it gave the impression of great, almost incredible age. Foggia shuffled out of the portal, his eyes bulging blankly, his mouth twitching, his hands splayed out in front of him. Presently, he began to drool. The scientists who had gathered around drew away from him and no, Mark really doubted if any of them had talked. They knew about the rats, after all, and the guinea pigs, and the hamsters, animal, any animal, in fact, with more brains than your average flatworm. They must have have, they must have felt, oh my god, they must have felt a bit of those German scientists who tried to impregnate Jew- Jewish women with the sperm of German shepherds. What happened? One of the scientists shouted, it's reputed to have shouted. It was the only question Foggy had a chance to answer. It's eternity in there. He said and dropped dead of what was diagnosed as a massive heart attack. The scientists foregathered they were left with his corpse, which was nearly taken care of by the CEI, CEI, oh my god, CIA and the FBI. And that strange and awful dying declaration. It's eternity in there. It's eternity in there. Daddy, I want to know what happened to the boys. Patty repeated. The only reason she had a chance to ask again was because the man in the expensive suit and the Eterna Shine shoes had developed into something of a problem for the John attendants. 
He didn't really want to take the gas and was disguising it with a lot of bluff bully boy talk. The attendants were doing their job as well as they could, smiling, cajoling, persuading, but it had slowed them down. Mark sighed. <sighs> he had opened the subject only as a way of distracting his children from the pre-John festivities, it was true, but he had opened it and now he was supposed he would have to close it as truthfully as he could without alarming them or upsetting them. He would not tell them, for instance, about C.K. Summers' book, The Politics of the Jaunt, which contained one section called The Jaunt Under the Rose, a compendium of more believable rumors about the jaunt, the story of Rudy Foggia, he of the Bridge Club murders and the uneaten chicken dinner was in there. There were also case histories of some other 30 or more or less, or who are no, oh my god, who knows? Or, or who knows, volunteers, scapegoats, or madmen who had jaunted wide awake over the last 300 years. Most of them arrived at the other end dead. The rest were hopelessly insane. In some cases, the act of re-emerging had actually seemed to shock them to death. Summer's section of jaunt rumors and apocrypha. Ap apocrypha contained other unsettling intelligence as well. The jaunt had apparently had been used several times as a murder weapon. Fuck yeah. In the most famous and the only doc documentary case, which had occurred a mere 30 years ago, a jaunt researcher named Lester Michelson had tied up his wife and their daughter's plexiplast and their daughter's plexiplast dream ropes and pushed her screaming through the John portal at Silver City, Nevada. <laughs> Fucking Nevada. But before doing it, Michelson had pushed the nil button on the John board, erasing each and every one of the hundreds and thousands of possible portals through which Mrs. Michelson might have emerged. Anywhere from neighboring Reno to the experimental John Station in Io, one of the Jovi Jovian moons. So there was Mrs. Michelson jaunting forever somewhere out there in the ozone. Michelson's lawyer, after Michelson had been held sane and able to stand trial for what he had done within the narrow limits of the law, perhaps he was sane, but in any practical sense, Lester Michelson was just as mad as a hatter, had ciphered a novel defense. His client could not be tried for murder because no one could prove conclusively that Mrs. Michelson had died. This had raised the terrible specter of a woman, discorporeal, but somehow still sentient, screaming in limbo, forever. Fucking A, man. That's nuts. When Stephen King gets it right, he gets it He gets right. it right. The My void. Michelson was convicted and executed. In addition, Summer <laughs> suggested- fucking lost. <laughs> well, there's no body! It's like the Wait, alligator you can't, argument. You can't prove it! It's like the alligator Where's the- argument. show me the body. Show Where's me the, the body, body and I'll Where's confess. The Where's the body? body? Show me- show me she's dead. Where's the body? Show, show me she's fucking dead. You show me she's dead, I'll go. I'll go if she's Arrested. dead. <laughs> Just cuts and handcuffs. Yeah. what I do? what I do? Why you- why you do no this? Body. In addition, Summer suggested that John had been used by various tin pot dictators to get rid of political dissidents and political adversaries. Some thought that the Mafia had their own illegal John stations tied into the central John computer through their CIA connections. It was suggested that the Mafia used the John Snell capability to get rid of bodies which, unlike that of the unfortunate Mrs. Michelson, were already dead. Seen in that light, the John became the ultimate Jimmy Hoffa machine, ever so much better than the local, grave, the local gravel pit or quarry. All of this had led to Summer's conclusions and theories about the John, and that, of course, led back to Patty's persistent questions about the mice. Well, 
Mark said slowly, as his wife signaled with her eyes for him to be careful. Even now, no one really knows, Patty. But all the experiments with animals, including the mice, seem to lead to the conclusion that while the jaunt is almost instantaneous physically, it takes a long, long time mentally. I don't get it, Patty said gloomily. I knew I wouldn't. But he was looking at his father thoughtfully. They went on thinking, he said, the test animals, and so would we if we didn't get knocked out. Yes, Mark said. That's what we believe now. Something was dawning in Ricky's eyes. Fright? Excitement? It isn't just teleportation, is it, Dad? It's some kind of time warp. It's eternity in there, Mark thought. In a way, he said. But that's a comic book phrase. It sounds good, but doesn't really mean anything, Rick. It seems to revolve around the idea of consciousness and the fact that consciousness doesn't particulate. It remains whole and constant. It also retains some screwy sense of time. But we don't know how pure consciousness would measure time, or even if that concept has any meaning to pure mind. We can't even conceive what pure mind might be. Mark fell silent. Mushrooms will show you. Troubled by his son's eyes which were suddenly so sharp and curious. He understands, but he doesn't understand, Mark thought. Your mind can be your best friend. It can keep you amused even when there's nothing to read, nothing to do. But it can turn on savages by itself, perhaps consumes itself, in an unthinkable act of auto-cannibalism. How long in there in terms of years? 0.0000000067 seconds for the body to John. But how long for the unparticulated consciousness? A hundred years? A thousand? A million? A billion? How long alone with your thoughts in an endless field of white? And then, when a billion eternities have passed, the crashing return of light and form and body, who wouldn't go insane? Ricky, he began, but the John attendants had arrived with their cart. Are you ready? One asked. Mark nodded. Daddy, I'm scared. Patty said in a thin voice. Will it hurt? No, honey, of course it won't hurt. Mark said, and his voice was calm enough but his heart was beating a little fast, as it always did. Although, this would be something like his 25th John. I'll go first, and you'll see how easy it is. The John attendant looked at him questioningly. Mark nodded and made a smile. The mask descended. Mark took it in his own hands and breathed deep of the dark. Because <laughs> here it fucking is. The first thing he became aware of was the hard black Martian sky as seen through the top of the dome which surrounded Whitehead City. It was night here, and the stars sprawled with a fiery brilliance undreamed of on Earth. The second thing he became aware of was some sort of disturbance in the recovery room mutters, then shouts, then a shrill scream. Oh dear God, that's Marilis, he thought, and struggled up from the jaunt couch, fighting the waves of dizziness. There was another scream, and he saw John attendants running towards their couches, their bright red jumpers flying around their knees. Marilis staggered towards him, pointing. She screamed again, and then collapsed on the floor, sending an unoccupied John couch rolling slowly down the aisle with one weakly clutching hand, but Mark had already followed the direction of her pointing finger. He had seen. It hadn't been fright in Ricky's eyes. It had been excitement. He should have known. Because he knew Ricky. 
Ricky, who had fallen out of the highest crotch of the tree in their backyard in Schenectady when he was only seven, who had broken his arm and was lucky that had been all he'd broken. Ricky, who dared to go faster and further on his slide board than any other kid in the neighborhood. Ricky, who was first to take any dare. Ricky and Fear were not well acquainted until now. Beside Ricky, his sister still mercifully slept. The thing that had been his son bounced and writhed on its jaunt couch. A twelve-year-old boy with a snow-white fall of hair and eyes which were incredibly ancient. The corneas gone a sickly yellow. Here was a creature older than time masquerading as a boy. And yet it bounced and writhed with some kind of obscene, horrid glee. And at its choked, lunatic cackles, the jaunt attendants drew back in horror. Some of them fled, although they had been trained to cope with just such an unthinkable eventuality. The old young legs twitched and quivered. Claw hands beat and twisted and danced on the air abruptly. They descended, and the thing that had been his son began to claw at its face. Longer than you think, Dad. It cackled. Longer than you think. Held my breath when they gave me the gas. Wanted to see. I saw. I saw. Longer than you think. Cackling and screeching, the thing on the jaunt couch suddenly clawed its own eyes out. Blood gouted. The recovery room was an aviary of screaming voices now. Longer than you think, Dad, I saw. I saw. Long jaunt. Longer than you think. It said other things before the jaunt attendants were finally able to bear it away, rolling its couch swiftly away as it screamed and clawed at the eyes that had seen the unseeable forever and ever. It said other things. And then it began to scream, but Mark Oates didn't hear it, because by then, he was screaming himself. What a happy story. It's like a fucking Twilight Zone episode. I love it. I love it so much. It really, it really is a goddamn Twilight Zone episode. It It could be a, it could be a black and white short film filmed in someone's fucking basement. Yeah. And it would still look great. Mm -hmm. That is so fun. That's a that good is, story. That's a that really is a good fun story. fucking story. Like you could just tell, like where Stephen King like kind of came up with everything, and like where uh, where parts of it came from to him. Like that has to have a little bit of inspiration from like the black hole and all other Star Trek and yeah. bullshit. And like I can't help but think of Doom when they talk about Pinky. Oh yeah, and how the guys the guys top half made it to Mars, but his ass landed in Atlanta, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, uh, it's, it's just fun. I, uh, I think I love sci-fi horror to say like above almost, but I also love Stephen King. So yeah. for me to read that was just like a little bit of dessert. The best know? of both worlds. It was great. And I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know if our, like, commentary was even needed, you know, because Stephen King just handles himself so well. I think it was a little anecdotal, a little scatterbrained at parts, but I, yeah. think, but I think ultimately he just tries to sell the world to you mm-hmm. more, no, than he, more than he tries to sell the story. And, and I do understand that, and I do get that, but it yeah. definitely felt longer than 16 fucking pages. Yeah, it did. 
It really did. Well, that's a good thing and a bad thing. Good thing for world building, stories. And like that. Yeah. Bad thing for us hungry boys sitting on a couch. Yeah, we need food. I'm so strained. this was Lots of Pasta episode one hundred thirteen with Disco Dracula. Disco Dracula. Sleep tight, kids. Sleep tight, fuckers. (laughs) 